Hey, that was fun, wasn't it? You enjoy that? Good. <laughs> so, here we are. Um, last week, then, we started uh, a brand new series, a brand new teaching series in the church um, that's going to take us on a journey all the way to um, Good Friday and Easter Sunday. And, and we've decided to call the series um, Final Encounters? Question um, mark. It's a series that's designed to take a fresh look at the, the conversations and the encounters that Jesus had during the last week of his life on earth leading up to the crucifixion. Sometimes referred to um, as Passion Week, sometimes it's referred to as Holy Week. Um, and if you're not 100% sure why we've included um, a, a question mark at the end of the title, it's because there is a, a major plot twist coming. Okay? And if you really don't know what that plot twist is, then I, I, I actively encourage you to be with us on Easter Sunday, um, and all will be revealed. Or you can just read ahead. Um, another reason to join us on Easter Sunday is that we're going to be having a, a baptism service here, um, and we're really, really excited about that. We've got four people already um, that are going forward for baptism. Can I get a whoop whoop? Woo! Nice. <laughs> Um, we don't believe that being baptised makes you um, a, a better Christian somehow, but we do think it's a really important step on the journey of faith. And I know from my own baptism and from speaking to many others over the years, it's a really, really wonderful experience and a chance to declare publicly that faith that you found in Jesus. So if, you, if you're a new Christian and not been baptised, or maybe been a Christian a long time and have never um, uh, considered it, I would really encourage you to consider it. Because it's a really great thing to do and it's wonderful to do it as a part of your church and with your church family and even more wonderful to do it on Easter Sunday. Um, just another reminder as well that next week we are going to be joined by a guest speaker, uh, a guy called Dave Newton, who is the director of training for Elim uh, as well as the principal of Regents Theological College. That's where I did my training, Brenda did her training, Steve did his training um, and he's coming to talk to us about what the college is up to, um, but also just to bring a word to us as part of our normal Sunday service as well. So I do encourage you um, not to miss next week. It's going to be really good, I think. It's going to be really good. So last week then, let me just recap for a minute. Um, we looked at a rather strange encounter that took place in the home of Simon the leper uh, at a place called Bethany. It involved a woman called Mary... Um, breaking an alabaster jar of perfume all over Jesus' head and his feet. And it led us to think about together what worship truly is and how worship that costs us nothing could perhaps be considered worthless. The Old Testament King David said, I will not sacrifice to the Lord burnt offerings that cost me nothing. And Jesus, in this act of worship, recognizing her Actions for what they truly are, this, this pure love and devotion, said some amazing things about her. Incredible words, including the words, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. And we said that, that that's really an incredible epitaph for Mary. However, but there were those there that um, felt that what Mary did was wasteful. 
In the Gospel of Matthew, we're told that the disciples were indignant. Why this waste, they say. This perfume could have been sold and the money given to the poor. And in Mark's Gospel, we discover that they rebuke her harshly. They give her a right telling off. John, however, as we looked at last week, paints a slightly different picture. John places the blame for this comment about how the perfume should have been sold firmly at the feet of one man and one man alone, a man named Judas, Judas Iscariot. He says, but one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected, why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. How interesting. Why does John highlight Judas? I don't think for a minute he was the only one complaining. The other gospel writers tell us that wasn't the case. But for some reason, John wants us to focus all of our attention on Judas and his misunderstanding of Mary's intentions. And this morning, um, I want to take some time and I want to do the same. I want to spend some time looking at the life of Judas Iscariot. Whether you know um, your Bible well or not, Uh, I'm sure there is a good chance, at least, that you've heard the name Judas before. It's a name that's become synonymous with the idea of betrayal, hasn't it? Like um, Brutus or Benedict Arnold, he's become known for his treacherous actions. He was the one that betrayed Jesus with a kiss, who led those who wished To kill Jesus straight to him, he handed them over for 30 pieces of silver. But what led him to make the decisions that he did? Was he um, merely the bad guy? Should we boo as we read about him? Or was there something deeper going on in his life? And of course, I want to ask, um, perhaps most importantly, what we might learn um, from the life of Judas this morning. So the Gospel writers, they actually record several um, encounters that Jesus had with Judas during this um, last week leading up to the crucifixion, beginning with this one that we've just looked at in the home of Simon um, the leper and ending in the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, the Garden's not the last time that we as the reader encounter Judas, but it's the last time that he encounters Jesus. But the encounter that I want to focus on this morning takes place between these two events during the Last Supper. And this particular story is actually found in all four Gospels, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But I want to focus mainly on John's retelling of this event, because I think he gives us um, the most detail. So if you've got your Bibles with you, um, uh, please would you turn with me to the Gospel of John in the New Testament, and we're going to be reading in chapter 13 this morning, chapter 13 of the Gospel of John. And we're going to begin... In verse 18, verse 18, I'm going to take this line by line because I think it's fascinating. So this is how he starts. He says, I'm not referring to all of you. I know those I have chosen, but this is to fulfill the passage of Scripture. He who shared my bread has turned against me. So this is our 
This is our setup. This gives us the scene that we're going to look at this morning. Jesus is sitting with his 12 disciples. It's the Passover meal and everyone's chatting and laughing and having a good time. And then Jesus clears his throat and he says, look, I'm not referring to all of you when I say this, but, but something is about to happen that's going to fulfill something written long ago in Scripture. And when Jesus talks about Scripture, he's referring to the Jewish Bible, um, which contains all of the books that are in um, the Old Testament in our Bible, the first kind of two-thirds of our Bible, including the book of Psalms, where the verse, he who shared my bread has turned against me, comes from. You can find it in Psalm um, 41 to be precise. But if we kind of use our imaginations for a minute, if we try and picture this scene in our minds, I always think we should use our imaginations when we um, read the Bible. Jesus is, is eating with his disciples, and there is a literal basket of bread being passed around. And then Jesus says, guys, do you remember that, that verse about someone sharing my, my bread and betraying me? That's about to happen. I imagine anyone still chewing at this point would have stopped. And their immediate thought would have been, who, me? Does he mean me? What have I done? Desperately thinking back through all their actions, their minds were racing, and suddenly the atmosphere had gone from a bit of a party to something a bit uncomfortable and a bit tense, a bit difficult. And so Jesus continues in verse 19. He says, I'm telling you this now, before it happens, so that when it does happen, You will believe that I am who I am. So that's interesting. That tells us something, doesn't it? Jesus takes this scripture and he says it's about to be fulfilled and I want you to know that it's going to be fulfilled so that you will believe the things that I've already told you about myself. Was it that some of the disciples still didn't believe or maybe... Maybe Jesus knew that the events that were about to take place would cause those who did believe to doubt what they knew to be true. And so he gives them something else to hold on to so they can remember and say, he knew, didn't he? Oh, he said, he said one of us was going to betray him. Remember, and Jesus continues in verse 20, very truly I tell you, whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me and whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. So there's a bit of, a bit of reassurance for the disciples there. You're the ones I've chosen, the ones I've sent. That's what being an apostle means, being a sent one. Don't forget where I've come from, who I am. But then things sort of, they amp up a little bit. Jesus gets a little less cryptic and a little bit more on the nose. In verse 21, we read, After he had said this, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Very truly, I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. Can't get much clearer than that. His disciples stared at one another, at a loss to know which one of them he meant. So things are really tense now. We've reached a whole new level. Jesus is visibly upset. He was troubled in his spirit. No one's eaten anything since he started speaking, and now they're just staring at each other across the table, wondering, who is it? Who's the betrayer? Which one of our friends has let us down at the same time thinking over their own actions? Is it me? What did I do? And then John, I I love the way he writes this next bit. I had to laugh out loud when I read this again earlier in the week. This next line, he says, one of them, 
The disciple whom Jesus loved was reclining next to him. Um, by the way, if, if you don't know, the, the disciple who Jesus loved is the way that John refers to himself in his own gospel. Okay? So he could have written, uh, I was sitting next to Jesus, or John was sitting next to Jesus, but instead he goes for, the one whom Jesus loved was reclining next to Jesus. And it's very typical John. It's very typical John. This. There's an amazing bit um, at the end of John's gospel where Mary discovers that the stone's been rolled away and she, she runs to find um, uh, Peter and John and it says they set out for the tomb. But then it says, but the other disciple got there first. There's no reason for that detail. John just wants you to know he's faster than Peter. It's, <laughs> it's, it's simply that. And I think it's a little bit of the same here. John wants you to know that he was sitting next to Jesus. He had the special place. He doesn't mention where anybody else is sitting, just him. And then it gets better. He writes in verse 24, Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, ask him which one he means. You can imagine, can't you? Psst, psst, John, John, who's he mean? Who's he talking about? Leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, it's the one to whom I give this piece of bread when I've dipped it in the dish. We assume he said that quietly to John. And then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. We'll come back to that in a minute. So Jesus told him, what you're about to do, do quickly. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Since Jesus had charge of the money, some thought that Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the festival or to give something to the poor. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out. And it was night. And it was night. So here we are. Jesus has revealed Judas to be the one that would betray him, the one who shares his bread. But something that's always kind of troubled me about this story, about this, this scene here, is why did Jesus, Judas take the bread? Did he simply not hear Jesus when he said, the one who shares my bread will betray me? Or was he beyond the point of caring about his intentions and hiding his actions? And John uses that odd phrase as well, doesn't he? Satan entered into him. Luke actually uses the same phrase in his gospel when um, Judas goes to betray Jesus to the chief priests and the temple guard. He says, Satan entered Judas. And earlier in this chapter of John, we read the evening meal was in progress and the devil had already prompted Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. So what does that mean? Was Judas not in control of himself? Was he just some uh, sort of puppet on a string? Well, his actions, not his own. Well, before we can answer those questions this morning, I think we just need a little bit more, more context. We need to know a little bit more about this man and his relationship with Jesus. Because Judas wasn't just some guy that happened to be at this meal. He was one of Jesus' 12 disciples, his, his closest followers. He was part of the inner circle, as it were. And, it, and that meant a couple of things. Firstly, it meant that Judas had made a commitment to Jesus. Just like the other disciples, after meeting Jesus, he had decided that this was somebody worth pursuing with his whole life. It would have meant that he left his job 
and his home and his family to travel around the land. In the last three years, they walked over 3,000 miles, spreading the message of the gospel alongside Jesus. This was a huge, life-changing commitment that he had made, and I very much doubt that it's a decision he made lightly. But not only did Judas choose Jesus, Jesus also chose Judas to be one of his twelve. One of the 12 that he was mentoring, that he was training to carry on his work after he was gone. We're told in Luke that Jesus stays up all night and prays for who he should choose as his 12 disciples out of the many, many people that were following him at the time. And Judas makes the cut. Jesus saw something special in him. If you doubt that, look at Luke 9 where it says, Jesus called the 12 together and gave them power and authority to drive out all demons, to cure diseases, and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and heal the sick. He didn't say he calls the 11 and tells Judas, mate, you stay at camp, there's something weird about you, just let the other lads handle this one. He sends out all 12 of them. Judas was engaged in kingdom building. He was a gospel preacher. So there was commitment and there was involvement in ministry. But what we're not told about is his motivation. Certainly, um, Judas was interested in Jesus. He enjoyed um, being involved in all that was going on. Else, why did he stick it out? You know, he could have left at any time, couldn't he? But I'm not convinced. I'm not convinced from reading the Gospels that Judas really recognized Jesus as the Son of God. I'm not convinced that he recognized him for who he really is. There is a fascinating um, detail in Matthew's retelling of the Last Supper that I think gives us some insight into this. Let me uh, just read it to you. It's in Matthew 26, uh, verses 20 to 25. It says, When the evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve, and while they were eating, he said, Truly, I tell you, one of you will betray me. They were very sad and began to say to him one after another, Surely you don't mean me, Lord. Peter says, Surely you don't mean me, Lord. James says, Surely you don't mean me, Lord. John says, Surely you don't mean me, Lord, and so on. And Jesus replies, The one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man will go just as is written about him, but woe to the man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him had he not been born. And then it says, Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely you don't mean me, Rabbi. Rabbi. All of the other disciples call him Lord. Lord is a word for uh, a master, for someone who has complete control and authority. But Judas calls Jesus Rabbi. Which on the one hand is is a term of respect. It's a term of honor. It was a term of endearment given to, to, to beloved teachers. But on the other hand, it gives Jesus no more importance than any of the other teachers of the day. And there were a lot of rabbis in the first century. Certainly not someone to give complete control of your life to. And so, although Judas was committed for a time and did the same work as everyone else, his revelation of Jesus never moves beyond him being a wonderful teacher. And it's not like he wasn't given opportunity was it? He saw the miracles he performed. He was with the other disciples when they handed out those five loaves that miraculously turned into enough food for 5,000 people. He was with them when Jesus came strolling across the water in the waves. He was in the boat when Jesus said, calm down, and the waves and the wind stopped. He saw Jesus heal people from leprosy and restore sight to the blind and give the lame the ability to walk again and raise the dead 
He was with him when he told the demons to flee and they ran because they were scared of Jesus. But there was something that kept his heart closed. The evidence was overwhelming. Had he never moved beyond seeing Jesus as a wonderful teacher? I don't think he believed and doubted like Thomas. I don't think he ever truly believed that Jesus was the Son of God. And I also think that there are many people today that are in the same camp as Judas. They recognize Jesus as someone special, an incredible teacher with some awesome ideas, you know, ideas that have lasted through the generations, things like do to others as you would have them do to you, let he who is without sin cast the first stone, pray for your enemies and those who persecute you, ideas that, that could change the world if we all follow them, but when it comes to recognizing Jesus as the Son of God, as the one who you should devote your entire life to, as the one that you should pursue with your whole heart, I think that's where they struggle. You see, there's this moment in Judas's life that we read about in Matthew 16. And Jesus, had, had, he'd been with his disciples for a couple of years at this point. It wasn't early days. They'd seen a lot. They'd, they'd done a lot. They'd been together for a long time. And Jesus turns to them and he says, Who do people say the Son of Man is? And that was sort of his nickname for himself. And the disciples, they give various answers, various ideas, Moses, Elijah. But then Jesus turns to them directly and he asks, but what about you? Who do you say I am? Who do you say I am? And Peter, because, you know, it's what Peter was like, he answers first. <laughs> he's under me. And he says, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus says, correct, 10 points. Um, and he commends him for it, if you know the story. But we're not told how the others responded, whether they nodded in agreement, oh yeah, whether they sort of furrowed their brow in uncertainty. But the thing is this, this question of who do you say I am, I think is a question that we all need to answer at some point. And how we answer will determine the course of the rest of our lives. Judas might have looked and sounded and even acted like the other disciples, but I don't think he really understood who Jesus was. And because of that, when the opportunity came, when it presented itself, he was more able to easily turn his back on Jesus. And the same is true for us. You know, we can, we can uh, look like a Christian. Socks and sandals is a good start. Um, <laughs> You can walk like a Christian, you can talk like a Christian, you can act like a Christian, you can do all the things that a Christian would do, but until we come to that point of recognizing Jesus as our Lord, as our Master, as our Savior, we won't really be living our life for Him. One of our, our, our kind of catchphrases, our sayings in this church is that Tamothelium is a place where you can belong before you believe, and we, we really mean that. We want as many people as possible to join us. We're not going to turf you out of the door because you don't quite believe the same things that we do. But at the same time, we want everyone to come to that place where they recognize him not only as rabbi, as a teacher, but as their Lord and Savior as well. Where we choose to start living our lives not for ourselves, but for him under his authority and direction because he is our Lord and he is the one that we serve. Because we believe that that is the best possible decision that you can make with your life. 
And the danger, the flip side of this, the, the danger is that if we don't give Jesus his, his rightful place in our lives, we leave ourselves open for other things to take his place. And I think this is what happened with Judas. You know those, um, those verses we read earlier about Satan entering into him? I think that's what it's talking about. I don't think he was somehow possessed, somehow taken over by the devil. But by simply choosing to reject Jesus, he left the door open for sin to creep in. For other things to take the place of Jesus in his life. Because that's how the enemy works. It's, it's, a, it's subtle at first. It's a little temptation, a little test of your resolve, a little pull in the wrong direction. For Judas, it was, it was greed. You remember last week we read about how he didn't object to the perfume being used on Jesus because he cared about the poor, but because he was the keeper of the money bag and he used to help himself to what was put in it. And I imagine the first time he did that, he thought, nah, it's just a little bit, it's all right, I'll pay it back. It's only a shekel or two, I'll leave the drachmas for the poor, it's fine. But the more he did it, the easier it became for him until greed became the driving force in his life to such an extent that he was willing to sell out an innocent man for 30 pieces of silver. Personally, I've, I've never been particularly motivated by money. <coughs> Had it been 30 pieces of cake, that would be... <laughs> I'd have to think about that. Um, but we're all tempted, aren't we, in different ways. That's my, that's my point. It might not be greed, it might be, it might be lust. And again, you know, it starts small, spending some time scrolling through Instagram, looking at a few bikini models, but before we know it, we're spending time on pornography and then paying for sex and on a slippery slope in the wrong direction. It might not be lust, sometimes it's even, it's even subtler than that. It might be like laziness or apathy, that little voice in your head that says, ah, you know what, don't bother with church today. It's fine, stay at home, watch some TV. You don't need it. You don't need to spend time with God. You don't need to spend time with other believers. You'll be fine for one week. It's all good. And then one week turns into two, and two turns into a month, and then a month turns into a year, and before long we still identify as Christian, but it doesn't mean anything anymore. Jesus is no longer the Lord of our lives, and it's so easily done, isn't it? We replace him with something else, drink or socializing or parties or box sets or social media or sex or pleasure and things that demand all of our time and attention but give us nothing in return, at least nothing that lasts, nothing worthwhile. They're not bad things in themselves, but when they become more important to us than Jesus, suddenly we're living for them rather than him. And they don't lead us anywhere worthwhile. They don't fill our lives with hope or meaning. They might give us a, a temporary high, but when they're over, we're just left out in the cold. It's alarming um, how quickly Judas came to despise the money that he was given. But you see, when we allow sin into our lives, we give Satan a welcome foothold. And the more we sin, the easier it becomes for him to talk us out of what we know to be true, to twist us up and to turn us around until we are prepared to walk away from him completely. I hate the way this story ends. I hate the way this story ends because it's utterly, utterly heartbreaking. And if you catch what he says in verse 30, it says, As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out, and it was night. 
When John starts his gospel, he introduces Jesus this way. He says, in him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. Judas walks out of the room containing the light of Jesus into darkness. He chose to turn his back on him and to walk away. Could he have changed his mind? Did he have to do that? Jesus says, I lay down my life. He went to the cross because it was his choice, not because of Judas's betrayal. And I believe without a shadow of a doubt that Judas could have changed his mind. I think this, this thing about the bread is fascinating. And he passes in the bread, the dip bread. Because although it was ultimately a fulfillment of scripture, culturally it was a sign of friendship. If the host dipped their bread and gave it to you, it's a sign of admiration. It was like a, a toast that was given in your honor. And I think in doing this, Jesus is doing a couple of things for Judas. Firstly, he lets him know one last time how much he is loved. Before the meal, we're told by John that Jesus washes all of their feet. I wonder how Judas felt as Jesus got down on his hands and his knees before him and cleaned his feet. I wonder if he struggled to make eye contact in that moment. But John says, having loved his owner in the world, he loved them to the end. And that included Judas. Don't doubt it. But as well as showing him how much he loved him, I think Jesus affords him the opportunity to repent. To come clean, to stop hiding in the dark and to come back to the light. I honestly believe that if in that moment Judas had confessed, if he'd told Jesus all that he'd done, how he had stolen and plotted and how he had schemed, I think Jesus would have forgiven him. He would have welcomed him with an embrace, with open arms, and he would have celebrated with him and the rest of the disciples. Because, you know, Jesus knows how fickle we are. He knows how, how broken and easily led astray that we can be. He's always talking, isn't he, about going after the lost sheep, bringing them back, the prodigal son returning home. There's an interesting parallel between Judas and Peter. And when Jesus speaks about Peter's betrayal in Luke 22, he says, Simon, because he had two names, he was also called Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat, but I've prayed for you. Simon, that your faith may not fail. And he says, and when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. When you have turned back. He knew that Peter would let him down too. He knew that he would turn his back on him, deny even knowing him. The difference was that Peter was prepared to repent. He was prepared to admit his mistake. And of course, Judas was not. He took the bread and left into the night. And although he was remorseful, although he returned the money, he never turned back to Jesus. And in the end, he took his own life. Um, much later on, John um, writes in one of his letters, his first letter, in fact, these words. He says, this is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie. Maybe that should say, if we claim to have fellowship with him and walk into the darkness, 
we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light and he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. He says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. As I read that again this week, I couldn't help wonder whether John had Judas in mind as he wrote those words. As Judas sat before Jesus and was given that chance to admit his sin, to be received into fellowship again, that's what he talks about, isn't it? But instead chose to keep his secrets, to pretend that everything is fine, that everything is okay, when really it wasn't. I've got a couple of... um, A couple of challenges I want to leave for you this morning as I draw this to a close. Actually, it would be good if the band would um, come and join me. I think we we need a bit of care in the story as we look at Judas this morning, that we don't, um, we're not too quick to paint him as the villain, to paint him as as the bad guy, and, and in doing so, miss the similarities between him and ourselves. Because if we're, if we're honest with ourselves today, there isn't a single one of us in this room that has the perfect relationship with Jesus. I'm sure many of us, I know many of us have come to that point of recognizing him as our Lord and our Savior, but how many of us live as though that's true? I know I don't always, far less than I would like to at any rate. And we all, from time to time, allow sin to creep into our lives, to take a hold of us and to distract us from God's plans and purposes for us. And it may even be the case that for some of us this morning, or maybe some listening online, that that there are those of us that have stopped living for him entirely. And, and you know, that's okay, that happens from time to time. That's, That's happened in my life, but I think... When we reach that point, we have a choice. We can go with Judas out into the darkness. We can turn our backs on Jesus completely. Or we can turn back to Jesus, our Lord and our Savior. We can repent and be forgiven and receive his love and his grace and his mercy again. Because that is what we are promised. That is what we are promised. Only one of those choices um, leads to life. The other leads to death. And so I want to leave you with two challenges this morning. Two challenges from this encounter with Jesus. Challenge number one is for those that that perhaps have a healthy respect for Jesus. Perhaps even uh, an interesting Christian community. Perhaps they're even involved in the the work of the church. It's, It's great to see you and we're so glad that you are here. But I would encourage you to take seriously that question of who do you say I am? Now, when Peter answers that question and says, you're the Messiah, the Son of the living God, his life is changed forever. And Jesus says, I can use you now. In fact, I'm going to use you to build my church. You're my rock, Peter. And God has things that he wants to do in our lives as well. But I believe they can only happen when we give him his rightful place in our lives. When we recognize him as our Lord and Master and Savior. 
Challenge number two is for those that have made the decision that Jesus is their Lord some time ago, but for a while now, you've just been tolerating sin in your life. You've allowed things to creep in, things that that need to be brought to the light and dealt with before they destroy you. And don't panic. I'm not going to ask you to come to the front and confess them. We're not that sort of church. This is between you and God. We're all going to close our eyes in a minute, so no one will even know. But I I think this morning that, that Jesus is offering you that dipped bread personally, giving you the opportunity to turn back to him. And as we sing... In a few moments, uh, a song or two, I want you to reflect on those words of John. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. He will forgive us. There's, um, there's, a, there's a, a lie, a game that, that Satan likes to play with us. And what he does is he, he whispers in your ear, not this time, you can't be forgiven. You've done too much. You've sinned too much. You've had too many chances. You're out. <laughs> Forget about it. You're done. But it's a lie. It's a, it's a lie, pure and simple. Jesus calls Satan the father of lies. And that's all it is, because we are promised. We are promised that if we confess our sins, that he is faithful. And God is here this morning, ready to welcome you back with open arms. Just waiting. I think, you know, I think that's what happened with Judas. I think he heard that voice saying, it's too late. You've messed up. But it was a lie. And it's the same lie. He needs to get some new ones, doesn't he? He uses the same lies over and over again. So if you're in that place this morning where you're just thinking, I know that I've been living wrong, but I keep doing it. I keep messing up. Paul writes about it later on. He says, I don't understand myself. I want to do right, but I keep keep messing up. It's all right. As long as we're prepared to turn back rather than turn away. I wonder if you'd stand with me. Let's just pray.